It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Whitney Lordson. Before this episode begins, I want to tell you about something a little time sensitive that I'm part of, which is a three-day virtual conference called Love Yourself First, How to Develop Supportive Friendships and Meaningful Relationships. This is really up my alley. I think it's up your alley too, given the topics that I cover. And this is actually something that I was invited to by a previous podcast guest, Coach Lee Hopkins, who did an episode with me in August 2022, invited me to speak and be part of this wonderful group of people. And the conference is taking place February 10th through February 12th, 2023. And there you can learn some different tactics to loving yourself, creating lasting connections that will enrich, enrich your life. This is a paid conference. And so full transparency. There is a small fee involved with it. And I have a promo code. The promo code is, let me pull it up, uncomfortable. 20. So uncomfortable, just like this might get uncomfortable, but uncomfortable 20. And you guessed it, that'll take 20% off the cost of the ticket. And I'll receive a small fraction of that. And the rest of the money goes towards running the event. And if you want to invite a friend to this and buy two tickets in the same transaction, you actually get a 50% off discount on the second ticket. So if you're looking to deepen your relationships, create more joy, affection, and really just learn from people like myself, from Coach Lee, all the amazing speakers that he has brought together for this, you can go to the link in the description. It's a little long. The full link is alwaysloveyourselffirst.eventbrite.com, and that's where you'll en enter that promo code uncomfortable twenty two zero. And I'll put it in the description of this episode and also in the show notes so that you can easily click through and check it out. See if it's a fit for you. Use a discount, invite your friends, share, spread the message if you would like. And now on to the episode. With my special guest, Odile, today, I am thrilled because this is the 400th episode and... People often, when I share the numbers of the show, are a bit surprised or I don't know if I want to say impressed, but just, wow, it's been so much time. But the time flies by because of amazing guests. And today also happens to be at least the day of release. I like to preface this with the fact that we're recording ahead of time in early November 2022, but also acknowledge that people listen at different times. So if you are listening on the day of release, it does happen to be Black Friday, which is a day in which people tend to look for deals. And I'm excited to share that Odeal, which is easy to remember her name because she said it was like deal or no deal, the television show. So Odeal has a deal today, which is something we're going to share at the end of the episode. So 
I think if you listen, you're going to be more and more excited to find out what this free gift is for you. It'll be shared in the details verbally at the end of the episode, plus in the show notes at wellevator.com, W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. Now, while we were speaking before clicking record today, Odile, you mentioned that you have a circus family and I would love to know some more details on this because I also have a feeling that ties into some of the topics we're going to discuss today about family and childhood experiences. From what I know so far, you mentioned that this was during your teen years, so maybe not quite childhood, but I would love to hear some background story about what that means to be in a circus family. Yes, of course. My brother, my sister, and I were the first generation to grow up out of the circus. So my grandparents, great-grandparents, and so on, and my mum were all born into the circus, and that was their life. And they all started working from four and five years old. So we were brought up outside of the circus, so in going to school and that kind of thing, but with that circus culture background. It was a show business family, so everything was around show business. My mum had left the circus to become an actress, and she married my dad, who was a singer. So he didn't have the circus background, but it was all about the show must go on and all of that kind of thing. We were brought up fairly strictly according to where show business was like a religion, that kind of intense dedication to this way of life, this standard of being professional. And so my brother, my sister, and I all started working at five, six years old. And you're right, that is part of my story, how I ended up doing what I'm doing now. And the interesting thing, I grew up as a performer. I loved performing. I became professional actress and singer, which I did for most of my life. And I really loved it. But I struggled my whole life with emotional issues. And the last few years before I changed everything, fibromyalgia, IBS, and money issues, like dramatic money issues, which I can share more on later. But the point I want to make is that as I changed the negative childhood memories, which is basically what what we do now, I discovered that if I'd grown up in an ordinary family, so non-showbiz family, I would never have become a performer. I would have become a neuroscientist or a psychologist or something to do with the brain. And I went into, became a professional performer because that was my conditioning and it was part of my survival technique. So it's the thing. So performing and being a good performer was the thing that got the reaction, the felt safe, basically. So my brain was conditioned for that until I changed it. That is fascinating. It's so interesting to hear stories from people's family lives that are vastly different from my own experience and from other experiences that I've heard. I don't know if I've met someone who grew up in that circus environment. And so there's all these ideas that I have about what that's like. And I love that you're touching upon survival and safety. And I imagine that plays such a big role in the work that you do, as you hinted at, and just the psychology of our emotions and the impact of these childhood experiences and who we become as adults. In fact, that is almost verbatim something in your work, which is how our childhood experiences determine our results 
as adults. And you had a quote that said, your childhood may be over, but your brain doesn't know that. Absolutely. Because the brain is still referring to everything you learned in childhood that determined your self-image and your worldview. So from birth, our experiences, the brain is recording, but not like a camera records. The brain is recording experiences and interpreting them to mean something, and they form a structure of who we are and how the world works, our self-image and worldview. And then moving forward, every new experience is filtered through that structure and added to it. And so the brain is referring to implicit or unconscious childhood memory to determine whether something, number one, is dangerous or not, and number two, how to respond automatically before we even consciously become aware of it, before the information gets through to the conscious part of the brain. I love knowing how the brain works. It's so fascinating to me. And something I'm eager to hear your thoughts on are related to whether or not it's useful to focus so much on our childhood to understand ourselves as adults. Like, in other words, I imagine doing some sort of reflecting is helpful. That's something common in, in therapy. That's something that a lot of personal development centers around. But is there a like a limit to that or a maximum amount? Should we be diving really deep into our childhood experiences, trying to uncover it? Because I find myself kind of wanting to do more and more of that. But then I think, is this actually useful? Or am I just almost trying to like reach for something that's not useful to me as an adult, if that makes sense? That's a great question. Yes, it makes perfect sense. So what we tend to, I don't like to do too much archaeology. <laughs> I don't like to do too much digging. And the reason for that is, so just very briefly, thoughts are connections between neurons in the neocortex of the brain. And those connections trigger matching chemicals. So negative thoughts trigger stress chemicals like adrenaline and cortisol. And feel-good thoughts, positive thoughts trigger feel-good chemicals like endorphin, serotonin, oxytocin. And so as we think about the negative stuff, and as we go deeper into it, every connection between neurons as we're focusing on that negative stuff is pumping stress chemicals into the system. So we don't want to do that more than absolutely necessary. But a certain amount is necessary in order to change it. So if you think of the implicit memories, the unconscious part of the brain, as GPS coordinates. So if we want to drive from where we are now to a new destination, we need to change the GPS to match that end destination. So if our childhood memories, as the GPS set for, I'm not good enough, and we want to end up with things that we desire, then every time we start heading towards what we desire, the brain is going to, the GPS can turn us around and head us back to keep an alignment with those childhood memories. So you need to go to the GPS enough to change the coordinates to match the end destination. So that's what we do with the childhood memories. It's like dipping your toe in a hot bath to check how strong it, how hot it is, and then you end up changing it. So there's no need to sit and soak in it. <laughs> That is really helpful. There's no need to sit and soak in it. Yes, that's really clarifying for me because I have a tendency to sit and soak because I feel like maybe if I stay here long enough, there'll be more information. I think I tend to have challenges with enoughness. I've noticed this a lot. Like there, of course, the 
common feelings of not being enough, not having enough. You mentioned like the financial side of it that you struggle with. I think that's a very common thing. And then there's the self-esteem side of things like not being enough of whatever quality and feeling like your worthiness is tied to that. And then there's also the side of, do I have enough information? That's something probably on the more unique side to me of just like craving more. And I struggle to make decisions or feel clarity until I feel satisfied with enough information. And how that ties into the childhood side of things is wondering, do I remember enough about my childhood in order to heal from it? in order to understand myself as an adult. Oh, that's an excellent point. Yeah. And you're not alone in that. And the answer is that, so there's a lot, of course, the conscious mind is only able to recall a tiny fraction compared to what is held in the unconscious part of the brain. For example, as we, if you look outside and that it's raining, how do you know it's rain? How do you know it's wet? And how do you know it's not dangerous? And how do you know if you walk out into it, you'll get wet? So all of that information is in the unconscious part of your brain. You don't need to consciously remember everything separately. But somewhere in your childhood, you experienced rain and learned all those things about it. And your brain, and the unconscious part of your brain just kept that data for future reference. Now, here's a fascinating thing is that whatever you can remember, if even if it was something last week, let's say the earliest memory I have of feeling anxious was last week, we would work with that first, just the whatever the earliest one is. We change that. Now, as we work with that, as we change it, the brain is automatically updating everything else that's connected to it. And that's what's so exciting. We don't have to consciously remember everything. And anything it can't update we will suddenly remember it. You'll suddenly have a memory. Oh yeah, when I was 14 years old, this pops up, this memory. Then we change that. And again, the brain will update whatever it can connected to that. And again, you may get another memory from when you were 10. And so that's the fantastic thing is that the unconscious part of the brain does all the heavy lifting. And we may consciously never know some of the stuff that's updated. I've got a wonderful example, if I can share this with you of this kind of thing happening, a very recent example. When I was writing our book, in the first chapter, I talk about sitting in my car and my mobile phone, my cell phone rings and it's on the passenger seat next to me. And I had a clear memory of the scene, visual memory. I can remember the cell phone on the passenger seat on my right-hand side ringing. And so I described the scene and when I was, I wrote it, I edited it, I reread it, all of that. And at some point <laughs> towards the end, when I was finally doing a proofread, I thought it couldn't have been on my right because I was in England and the car driver's side is on the right and the passenger seat is on the left. It had to have been on the left, but my memory was so clear with it being on my right. And what had happened there was I've been living in America for five years now. So my brain had updated just that one piece, just that one piece of data, it updated it. And that's happening all the time. So as we change certain memories, whether they're from now or from childhood, the others will update automatically. That is really helpful. I love that metaphor. And that's something else I wanted to speak with you about today is changing things like limiting beliefs. 
by changing the unconscious memories that prove them. This is something that I know you specialize in and I'm, I am enjoying that perspective of wow, our memories are proving these limiting beliefs we have about ourselves and our lives. So how can we update those thoughts to be more in alignment with how we want to be? Absolutely. And not being good enough is a very common one. You know, that a lot of us have that. And using that as an example, and it's one I changed in myself, I was doing all of the, the affirmations and the visualization and all of that and Louise Hay, mirror work, all of the things. And I am worthy. I am wonderful and all of that. And as I was doing that consciously, the unconscious part of my brain was referring to my childhood memories that prove I'm not good enough. I could keep do, keep going for the rest of my life with those affirmations, but it's the unconscious part of the brain is the one running the show. As I went about my life, let's say I encounter, oh, a classic one for me was asking to be paid. So as I went to ask to be paid, for example, for something I'd done, my brain would refer to the fact that I don't deserve it and it's dangerous to ask anything. And then it would put pump stress chemicals into my system. And I would feel this cringiness at the thought of being asked to be paid for something I'd done. I'm curious how you recognize that because that makes sense to me as you're sharing it. But despite all of the work I've done and reflecting, as I've mentioned, there's still elements I don't understand. Like the, I don't know if it's a lack of memory about feeling certain ways, because as an adult, I feel like, oh, this is obvious. Like I, I obviously shouldn't feel this way, but I don't have like direct memory of where those ideas got kind of lodged inside me. So how do we tap back into that? Or if it's not necessary to remember it because it's so unconscious, how do we do the work on something that we don't even know where to locate in our past? First of all, we have three main detective questions that we use. The first is, how do I know? So how do I know this is a problem? Or you could also ask, what's the worst thing about this? So using my, the first money thing that I worked on, my question to myself, okay, so how do I know? How do I know I have a money problem? And the answer to that for me was, I don't have enough money to pay my bills. And that was a lifelong pattern. The second question is, how does that feel? And it'll be different for different people. For me, it felt like they want something of me and I don't have it to give them. If I had it, I want to give it to them. I just don't have it. And it was a really intense, gut-wrenching feeling. And the third question is, where in your childhood did you feel that feeling? But very importantly, it may be a different topic, but it'll be the same feeling. And that's the key. So for me, it was about expectations. It had nothing to do with money. It was, they want me to be something and I can't be it. And that was that same feeling it was my entire childhood. So that's why it can be difficult to find the childhood memories. That's one of the reasons it's a different topic. The second reason is mostly we look for trauma or something obviously bad, but there's a range of references. So it can be something like the loss of a pet or moving house, moving schools, obviously bullying in school, that kind of thing. It can be my parents were very stressed and I was picking up the, the anxiety. It can be the silent treatment 
there's just so many options of that. And then in addition, or of course, parents divorcing, that kind of thing, and misunderstandings. And then in addition to all of that, it could be good memories. And for example, addiction is very often supported by good memories as well as the negative memories. An example of that, I worked with someone who wanted to stop smoking. We'd worked on her, we changed all the bad memories from her childhood. And then I asked her, do you have any good memories about smoking? And she didn't have any sort of earlier ones, but some of her favorite memories were her and her husband and did she have a daughter? I think she had a daughter. They would stand outside the back door smoking and drinking soda. And that was just a lovely time. They, there was a connection between them and all of that. So then I asked her what it reminded of her of. Did she have any good memories that connected at all to the smell of cigarettes or seeing cigarettes or anything like that? And she had memories of her grandfather who she would sit on the steps of the house next to her grandfather when she was a child and he would smoke. And he was a complete contrast to her father. He was, she felt safe with him. She had a close relationship with him. So her brain had made a connection between the smell of cigarettes and feeling safe and loved. So we changed that memory to where now instead of the smoking, they're sitting on the steps. And the, I also asked her what some of her favorite smells. And she mentioned a few, including the ocean. So I said, okay, so the house is now on the beachfront and she's sitting on the steps with her grandfather. So we kept all the love and connection, all the good stuff. We added in the smell of the sea and took the cigarettes out and put glasses of iced water. So there's the tinkling of the ice and the feeling of the ice cold water. Then her brain connected those sensations with love and connection. So then she didn't want to smoke anymore. That is remarkable. And what a great example of editing memories. One thing you like to touch upon is overcoming generational suffering through memory editing. I was really curious to hear about that. And does that tie into generational suffering, this example you just gave, or is there another level to understanding what that means? There's another level. So that was her experience with her grandfather. I wanted to mention one more thing before we move on to the generational stuff is the other question you can ask yourself if you think, can't think of any negative childhood memories. So a lot, you know, some people say, I had a good childhood. I can't think of anything bad that happened to me, but I'm still not happy with my life right now. One of the questions I ask is, how were you punished when you did something wrong? And so, because that, it's important to understand the separation of the conscious and the unconscious. The conscious mind, logic, reason, can make sense of things, has a sense of time and understand. Whereas the unconscious part of the brain is more like a dog, is responding in the moment, everything's happening now. There's no sense of time and there's no ability to use logic or reason. It's experience right now. And so as your brain refers to the childhood stuff, it's happening right now. And when we are punished, the conscious mind may well understand and go, I know I was punished because I was naughty and I did this and I was warned and I didn't listen and all of that. But the unconscious part of the brain cannot understand that. And so the unconscious part of the brain has interpreted it, who knows how, <laughs> but in some way, it's taken it to mean something about who I am and how the world works. And so what I always say is change it so that you were never punished. Instead of punishment, 
your parents sat you down and explained things kindly and compassionately and nicely and, and clearly, and on top of that, helped you make a strategic plan for what to do next time. Okay, so instead of doing that, I tell you what, how about next time, let's put a plan in place to help so that you can make a different decision, that kind of thing, number one. And then that's a kind of stepping stone. The final memory is that you never did anything wrong. And those kinds of references, having those references for your brain to refer to, support an entirely different and much more empowering self-image and worldview that will have a knock-on effect on everything else. That could be transformational to go through that exercise. Is it something that you can do on your own or do you recommend doing this type of work with a therapist or which with, do you consider yourself a coach? A guy? How do you refer to your profession? Yeah, I think of myself as a mindset coach specializing in using neuroscience to change negative childhood memories and gain control over brain chemistry. But yet you can absolutely do it yourself. What we do suggest is not attempting to address trauma on your own because that can be overwhelming. So definitely get help with any trauma memories. And trauma is different for different people. So the sort of gauge to use is that if when you think of a negative memory, the negative emotions are an eight on a scale of zero to 10, where zero, I can't feel anything, 10, it's very strong. If it's an eight or higher, reach out for help with that one. But the process itself, you can use, yeah, it's a DIY thing. You can do it yourself. I do this show so that I can share important stories and learn from all different types of people. And this feels like a good moment for me to pause and shout out one of the episode sponsors, Zencaster, which is an all-in-one podcast production suite that gives you studio quality audio and video. When I'm working with a guest, it is awesome because it records each of our audio and video locally, meaning to each of our computers, and then it uploads it to the cloud with crystal clear audio and video, as hopefully you've noticed so that the editors that I work with have some really high quality material. And this is all done so seamlessly, so easily that it's made my life really simple. It's created a great experience for my guests. And again, I hope that it's made a good experience for, with you too. And this is why I'm thrilled to have Zencaster as a sponsor. If you want to try it out, you can use my code WELLEVATORZEN at Zencaster.com slash pricing. The code is spelled W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R-Z-E-N. When you use that, you will receive 30% off of your first three months of Zencaster Professional. There's also a free version, but the professional version of this has so many amazing features. I want you to have the same simple experiences that I have with all of my podcasting and content needs. I believe it's finally time to tell your story. So check out the link in the code in the description as well as the show notes. Odile, I really appreciate the steps that you give because you articulate them in a way that invokes confidence and in being able to work through these things. And it's so wonderful to hear that you can do that in many cases on your own. And I think that's so empowering but certainly the power of working with a coach is something I can attest to and a therapist, of course. Like, I think it's an important reminder for us that we don't have to do this work alone. 
And sometimes we shouldn't because it's really tricky. It can be dangerous. Childhood trauma, trauma in general, called trauma for a reason. It's traumatic and we react to it in so many different ways. And I'm curious, going back to the generational suffering, because sometimes it's not just our own trauma that we're dealing with, it's our family's trauma on top of it. And I'm curious, when you talk about generational suffering, is does this tie into epigenetics, like how things are passed down through us that we never even experienced ourselves? Are these things that we're witnessing? How do you define generational suffering? It's all of the above. So epigenetics definitely has a role and there's quite a lot of stuff, uh, quite a lot of research on that, but also the knock-on effect. So if you imagine if our parents and grandparents had been raised differently, so let's say my grandmother, my mother's mother was raised with kindness and compassion. She was born to two people who were in love and emotionally intelligent and financially stable. It was a safe environment to grow up. So she grew up feeling loved and safe. That child would then grow up into a teenager who feels loved and safe and confident and has people skills and all of it does well in school and everything, then you can imagine the kind of woman she would have grown into and the kind of mother she would have been to my mother. And of course, then my mother growing up being treated the same as thing and so on. That's the generational hand-me-downs or heirlooms that we work with. We use a technique, generational childhood memory transformation. And what that entails is, and we all feel some, or most of us feel some kind of resistance at first to changing our parents, especially where in difficult, where a parent has been particular, where there's a lot of damage or hurt. And the end result you want to get to is that you can change whatever you want. You make the parent as ideal as you can because that's empowering. And there are no people in your brain. There aren't even any pictures or sounds in the brain or movies. It's all just neurons, nerve cells connecting and chemicals. That's all that's there. So what originally happened is now not happening anymore, but the brain is reliving it and the body reliving it because those neurons are connecting and pumping stress chemicals into the system. That's all that's happening now. So now you want to be the boss of your brain and you decide what your parents were like <laughs> and what you can give that little you, that child in you, you can grant all their wishes and give them the most perfect childhood. Now, understanding all that consciously, of course, is important and it is the first step, but there can still be resistance. And so then we want to say, okay, person says, I can't imagine my father differently. He was like that. He was horrible and I can't imagine him differently. Or he was, yeah, I can't imagine him being affectionate. The answer to that is, can you imagine if he had grown up differently, if he'd had the perfect childhood and felt safe and loved all his life and had the support of his parents and enthusiasm and grown up with abundance and all of that, can you imagine the kind of person he would have been and the kind of father he would have been? And sometimes that works. And sometimes people still say, no, I can't imagine that because his parents were so horrible. <laughs> you go, okay, now can you imagine if they'd grown up differently? And so on until you reach a point where you go, okay, I can imagine that. And then you work forward. And so I do a generational childhood memory transformation meditation 
where I take you through the each, so the maternal grandmother, maternal grandfather, and the mother, and then the paternal grandmother, grandfather, and father. And then can you imagine what your life would have been? We do that. And then, of course, that's before you get to culture and religion, because that's a whole, and the country you grew up in, and the heritage that's come from many generations. So if you're talking about slavery and other persecution and the Holocaust, there's just, there's a lot of civil war. There's a lot of historical trauma that is, that continues to contribute to who we are now, to our self-image and worldview. And epigenetics definitely, but also we are hearing it from, from those who raise us. We're seeing it demonstrated. We are reading about it. And this is a very important piece as well. As we are told, the brain forms a memory, especially if there's a lot of emotion. So even if we weren't there, we still, the unconscious part of the brain still experiences it as if we were there, if there's a lot of emotion. So as we're told about the terrible suffering of an ancestor or a grandparent or a parent, especially as children, the brain forms those memories. And while we consciously know we weren't there, the unconscious part of the brain is behaving as if we were and putting the same chemicals into the system. And so those kinds of things we can change. It's really interesting to hear you share that because I have a few experiences of hearing things secondhand, but feeling as if I was there. And these were traumatic things that just thinking about them, I can feel my body like tense up and I feel like brain remembers it. I know consciously that I wasn't there, but I can sense it in a way as if I was. And just hearing you share that is affirming, but also I feel a bit curious. What else have I been told? And I'm so glad that you brought up the impact of culture and religion and the historical suffering because there's so much of that depending on how, I suppose, in touch and aware we are with ourselves. But on that same note, do you think that people have the capacity to feel things about the same? It's just that we have different levels of self-awareness. So we might be taking things in, but not really noticing that because we've built up such a like a buffer, a ability to ignore the tough emotions, I suppose. So what makes the difference is what references we have. So not everyone experiences things in the same way. So you could have several people experience the same event, but each one will experience it according to their own childhood references. So one person may suffer PTSD from it. Another person may be really upset by it, but get over it over time and be able to heal. Another person, it may not impact them much at all. And that's all going to depend on each individual's existing self-image and worldview created by their childhood, implicit childhood memories. So that's why not everyone who experiences a traumatic event, the same traumatic event, will develop PTSD. Some will, some won't. It's the childhood that makes the difference. And in addition to that, when you hear something, so let's say you watch the news, one person will be very affected by it and perhaps have nightmares. Another person may be upset by it and get over it, and another person may not even see it as a bad thing necessarily. They may go, oh, there's nothing to do with me. And again, that's about the references. So as we're watching something or reading something or hearing something, 
So for example, what you were saying when you, the things that affected you, your brain was referring to something that told you what it meant. And before you even became consciously aware of it, it had already pumped stress chemicals into your system. And then your conscious mind catches up and goes, oh, this is upsetting because. Does that make sense? That makes so much sense. And yet at the same time, I sit here wondering, how do we navigate life (laughs) with everybody having completely different views of the same thing? I feel like as human beings, there's a tendency to assume that other people think the same way that we do. And man, like the last few years of my life, I feel like I've had a shocking realization of how differently I look at things, how I think about things, process it. So if we're all walking around thinking about things, maybe not completely differently, perhaps like there are different frames of reference that or categories, like we can say, okay, one person's probably going to have this type of thought, another person's going to have this type of thought, and like we can group ourselves into different ways of how we might perceive things. But even if we think relatively similar to somebody else, there's still all those nuances based on our childhood experiences. It explains why we struggle so much in relationships, romantically, professionally, friendship, family, like we're all just looking at things through a different lens. So how do we a get along, manage as a society? Does that kind of explain why society sometimes feels so chaotic? Yes. So when you think of all the people who are everybody anyway, but certainly pulling out a little bit our perception or perspective rather, people who are running businesses, running countries, running cities and so on, each individual is seeing things through their own of who they are and how the world works. And each one is determined, completely knows that that's how it is. And everybody sees the same thing. They're just not doing what they should be doing. It's nobody knows. So there's that. And then in addition to that, you've got all of the interactions. So somebody says something, it goes through this filter to my childhood and this is what it means. Now, and then it becomes, so for example, people say, if I smile at someone and they don't smile back, that's rude. So people think that. I used to think that very much so. (laughs) But in some cultures, smiling is just weird, especially at people you don't know. It's just, it's not, you don't do it. They think there's something wrong with you. And it saying certain things, I know people have said, they said this to me and that was mean or that was rude. But if they'd said it in another language that you didn't understand, there wouldn't be any reaction. You wouldn't have any reaction because it wouldn't mean anything. So it's the meaning we have for things, but it's the automatic unconscious meaning that is having the impact. It's not the conscious mind. The conscious mind is like the dog owner and the unconscious part of the brain is like this massive dog that's really strong and has, it can't understand when you explain things to it. So it takes training and conditioning, but you can only do that when you understand that it's a dog and it doesn't understand logic or reason. You can't explain things to it because otherwise you're trying to communicate on a level that you can't. I don't know if you've seen that video that went viral about, ah, what was that dog's name? Felton? I can't remember. He chased the Fenton. Right? Is it (laughs) Fenton? (laughs) That's the unconscious part of the brain. And the thing is to catch Fenton before he spots the deer, (laughs) 
before he starts showing it. So as he starts looking at the deer, Fenton, come. <laughs> but to wait until he's running, it's too late. And that's exactly what happens with our brains, right? So this is the other key piece here. Stress chemicals like adrenaline, cortisol, are stronger than feel-good chemicals. And that's why it's easier to feel bad than to feel good. Once Fenton's already running, that is the equivalent of we were already triggered. I'm already feeling frustrated, angry, frightened, anxious, whatever that is, betrayed. And by then, it's you just got to wait until Fenton comes back on his own. You just got to do whatever you can to feel better right now because you can't unbring that bell. So the key is to catch it early, which means this is what we call zero tolerance. So as soon as I start to notice I'm not feeling good, as soon as I start to feel slightly triggered, that's when I'll to catch yourself and answer it. So it's not that you're pushing it away or ignoring it. You answer it, the issue. So let's say, for example, think, oh, I don't know what I'm going to do about this. I'm so worried about this. Okay, let me answer that. What are my options? Or don't worry, it'll be okay. We don't know yet. So as if you're answering someone else, as if you've got a child in the room with you and that child is expressing whatever that is. So you answer it reassuring and that, and then change your focus to something. So in other words, connecting a different pattern of neurons, that's going to trigger feel-good chemicals. So thinking of your favorite color, imagining being surrounded by it, thinking of something you're looking forward to, imagining hugging someone you love, that kind of thing to change your chemical state before the stress chemical, the level of stress chemicals gets too high where Fenton's gone. Well, first, I love the Fenton reference. And for anyone who doesn't know, we're talking about, I'll link to that in the show notes. I can't wait to rewatch that video. I think it's, I saw a reference that it's at least 10 years old and yet look at the impact it has. And it's such a great example because for anyone that resonates with that video, you can reference that in your head when you're going through an example like you just gave us. And that's really helpful. Those visual cues, those even auditory cues for us to say, okay, what do I need right now? Because I think a lot of us have a tendency to panic in those moments. They're scary. They're overwhelming. They, many of us have not had these resources at our fingertips. And even when we do, it's still challenging. It's not like it automatically gets easy just because we know what to do. We still have to practice it. And having something to go to feels really supportive. One of the things to bear in mind as well is this is all physiological. So this is not airy-fairy. This is this physical things happening. And I equate it to if you wanted to run a marathon, and you'd never run before, you wouldn't be able to just get off the couch and run. You probably run for 30 seconds to a minute and really feel it. You'd need to do a bit each day and build up. And as you run over a period of time, your muscles change, your body changes physically. So you build the stamina, you build your muscles and so on. And this is the same. 
So every time you practice whatever it is that works for you, so you can use mindfulness, you can use music, just listening to your favorite music, walk around the block, listening to an uplifting audio book, whatever you, now we teach a little exercise called a beginner's exercise. And it's literally just imagine being surrounded by your favorite color and then hugging something or someone you love, or imagine hugging yourself as a child, or you can look for five things to be grateful for, whatever will connect those kinds of neurons, make those kinds of neural connections to produce feel-good chemicals. And as you do that, when you don't need it, that's the key. Just like you would run when you don't need to run a marathon to build up the stamina. Or if you were going to play a musical instrument, you wouldn't wait till the night of the concert before picking it up. (laughs) You'd have to practice lead it when you don't have to perform it. And then when you need it, you're already conditioned. You've already developed that skill. And so practicing those feel-good exercises, whatever they look like for you, whatever works for you, when you're not triggered, when you're feeling good, that's when you build your skill and the habit and you condition your brain and body to produce lower levels of stress chemicals, higher levels of feel-good chemicals, all that, so that then when you're in a situation that is triggering, you've already got that skill. You've already developed it. I really appreciate the way that you articulate these things and put them into perspective. It's very soothing listening to you. I'm just so grateful for the work that you're doing and for the time you've spent with me and the listener today. You've referenced a few times we, and is we your husband? Yes, indeed. My husband, Steve Remett, who also co-authored the book. So we met in February 2017 and got married in the August, and we developed this method together. So we'd each separately made a lot of changes using these, some of these techniques, and then the rest we developed together. And we, he does one-to-one sessions. I do group work and talks and interviews and so on. That's so wonderful. So if you go to your website, there are different options for how to work with each of you. And I would love to hear more about the book because I believe that ties into the free gift we teased at the beginning. Yes, indeed. So the book is called Change What Happened to You, How to Use Neuroscience to Get the Life You Want by Changing Your Negative Childhood Memories. And it's available on Amazon and Audible and everywhere books are sold. But I'd love to offer your audience a free ebook copy of the book. So it's the full book, just PDF version. And everything you need in order to make these changes is in the book, including changing your own brain chemistry, the little brain chemistry exercises. There's references to all the science for those who are interested in the neuroscience behind those things. And it's got examples and the exact step-by-step of how to do it. And troubleshooting. So what to do when you can't find any memories or you can't remember anything, or you've got too many memories and you're feeling overwhelmed or something's not changing. There's all of those troubleshooting things there and frequently asked questions at the back. That is so incredibly generous of you to offer that up. What an amazing tool to have after listening to a conversation like this, to know that you could go do something to take advantage of a free offer which is such great time. As I mentioned, this just happens to be coming out on Black Friday where people are in that mentality. But this is a time of year around when this episode releases that 
a lot of people are struggling. The holidays bring up so many emotions. The day before we recorded this was Thanksgiving, or the day before this releases is Thanksgiving. And many people associate that with family or even trauma. Of course, there's a lot of historical trauma tied into that holiday. And some people are triggered by that. They're feeling emotional and frustrated. I mean, it's just like, All these emotions get brought to the surface in November, December, and even January, February. It's like there's this chunk of three to four months where I think a lot of people struggle. So thank you for offering this to someone as a tool that they can turn to, to start to figure out their path forward towards that change that they want to make. Oh, you are so very welcome. Thank you for the opportunity to share all of this. My passion is making sure that people have the information because if they have the information, then they have the choice whether they use it or not or whatever. But I am really passionate that people need to at least know about it and then they can, they're empowered to make a choice. Knowing about it and also having the next step forward, which could be just picking up a free copy of a book and sitting down to read it and knowing that it's there when you're struggling and you're trying to figure out what to do. Because of course, as you mentioned, the financial side of things can feel tough, especially if you're not sure if something's going to work. It's hard to spend money on it. And I think it's such a wonderful thing because maybe somebody reads the book and then decides they want to do group coaching with you or they want to do one-on-one or they want to tune into other resources that you have. So of course, a link to your website as well so that somebody can explore more of what you're doing beyond the book. And just listening to this, I feel so comforted having this conversation with you, hearing how you frame things. You do it in a way that feels simple so that I can address the complex things. And that is beautiful talent that you have. Thank you very much. And it's something I just love doing with a passion. And I love answering questions. There's no question that I won't answer. There may be some I don't know the answer to, and then I'll just say, I'm sorry, I don't know the answer to that. But there's nothing that would offend or anything like that. So we've had some people say or comment rather on posts saying, oh, yeah, this is just lying to yourself. This is gaslighting yourself. I so understand that comment. And the answer is, it's the difference between the conscious and the unconscious. So when we watch a movie, the brain and body go into the same state as if we're in a, in physical danger. The only thing stopping us from running screaming into the street is that the conscious mind knows it's just a movie. But the unconscious brain is putting the body into that, putting stress chemicals in, increasing heart rate and behaving as if we're in physical danger. And when we watch a movie, we're allowing the unconscious part of the brain and the body to believe what we're watching for the experience of it while we still consciously know what is happening. And we do the same with the memories. We're changing the unconscious reference. We still consciously know what happens. So we're changing implicit memory to explicit memory. So changing the negative memories from something that proves who I am and how the world works to just something that happened. And then we are replacing that implicit memory with empowering evidence that proves the self-image and worldview and beliefs that I want to have now moving forward. And the same thing with, with the analogy of the GPS. So when you're in Chicago and you want to drive to LA and you change the GPS, you're not lying to yourself. 
you're not in LA right now. That's true, but you're changing the GPS because that's where you are going. And so the GPS will accept those new coordinates and guide you to LA while you as the driver will still remember, oh yeah, I know I'm in Chicago. I know I was somewhere else before, but now I'm heading toward LA. That's so beneficial. And again, empowering to just say, okay, this is what's going on and I'm on my way to that change. And just like driving, which is something I talk a lot about on this podcast because I do it a lot, is it can take a while. But I love the driving metaphor because from my firsthand experience, sometimes when I get in the car to do one of my long road trips, I have this overwhelming sense of, wow, I'm about to drive a really long distance. This is going to take a while. But once I get there, I have a feeling of that actually felt like it went by really fast. So it's amazing how much your perspective on time shifts as you do something. That state that you go from at the beginning versus when you've finished something. And I think that's true of a lot of challenging, overwhelming things is just getting into the car is the first step, but one of the most important steps, because that's often the hardest part is just saying that you're going to go do something and starting. Once you have that momentum, it goes by faster and faster to the point where you look back and say, wow, that actually wasn't that hard and it didn't take that long. And now I've achieved this. So thank you for sharing that. That's That really resonates with me. And again, like your passion really came through in our conversation, the ease in which you address this. You answered my questions that somehow in my brain, I'm wondering, did these make sense? But you listen and you understand and you have approached everything with me today with so much grace. And I'm just deeply grateful for the work that you do and the time that you've shared with me and the listener today. Thank you so much, Whitney. And I'm so grateful for you and the platform you're providing for not just this interview, but all the others that you've done and continue to do to help empower people. There's so many pieces that contribute to each person's well-being and progress and reaching those destinations they want to get to. So I really admire the work you're doing as well. Thank you so much. And for the listener, as mentioned, I will link to this free gift and all the other resources, the references we've made to Fenton the dog. <laughs> I'm going to go watch right now just to have a nice little hit of dopamine from that because it's. I hope it's as funny as I remember. But even if it isn't, it's just a delightful reference to what we discussed today. So everything is in one place for the listener at wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. And to make it super easy, if you look at the description underneath your podcast player, there will be a link to both the show notes and Odile's website so that you can easily go check that out and find that free gift as well. So thank you again to both you, Odile, and the listener. I'll be back with another episode next week. Bye for now. Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. 